Good evening and thanks so much for coming. Um, my name's John Dewitt. I'm the manager of the Social Science and History Department here at the Library. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce to you David O. Stewart, the author of Madison's Gift. John said he'd make it short and sweet. He did. <laughs> um, thank you all for coming out here. Um, and uh, this talk was supposed to be about a month ago, but it was in the middle of our extended winter. So uh, I'm glad we were able to get together on a nicer day. Uh, it was postponed. Um, I think it may be helpful to talk for a minute about why I wanted to write about James Madison. I've done a number of history books, and some in this era. Uh, and it started c coming through to me two facts about Madison that uh, really fascinated me. The first was that he was so central to the founding of America, the United States. Uh, and I really have become persuaded that he was more central, really, than any figure other than George Washington. Washington was uh, the indispensable man. He's the person without whom it's not obvious the country would have been created. But I think Madison is, is second only to Washington. And let me just give you a quick list of the things and the events and episodes he was central to starting with the calling of the Constitutional Convention at a time when there was a real fear among America's uh, leaders that the country would not survive, that we would break up into three countries, New England, uh, middle states, and the South. After the Revolutionary War, we had a very weak central government. The states were fighting with each other. And it was not at all clear that we were going to survive. Of course, at that Constitutional Convention in 1787 in Philadelphia, Madison was a pivotal figure. He's often referred to as the father of the Constitution for his work there. He took the notes of the debates during the Constitutional Convention, which is the essential source that we have of what went on there. Once the Constitution was written, it was by no means a sure thing that it would be ratified. It was very controversial. Madison mobilized the effort first the propaganda effort in the writing of the Federalist Papers, which he and Alexander Hamilton did jointly, which was really a, a propaganda campaign to persuade people to support the new Constitution, and then the actual political fight in the 13 different uh, uh, separate state conventions. When the first Congress was convened, in 1789, James Madison was the leading figure. He was referred to at the time as Washington's prime minister. He wrote the legislation that created the, the government, the different departments, the different procedures. He wrote the Bill of Rights. That's pretty cool. Um, and got them pushed through Congress. He was co-founder of the first American political party, I'll talk a little more about that. I think Madison might be a little chagrined to hear him remembered for founding a political party. But he founded a party that was called the Republican Party. It's now still around, although it's called the Democratic Party, and it's not exactly like it was in his day. In the pivotal 
election of 1800, he and Thomas Jefferson were co-architects of an essential moment in our history when the government changed hands. It's often said that the true test of a democracy is whether power can pass from one contending party to another. And if you've watched the elections in Nigeria in the last few weeks, they may have reached that moment. And for America, the moment was in 1800 when the Republicans defeated the Federalists. And Madison was a central part of that. He was Secretary of State for eight years and oversaw the purchase of the Louisiana Territory, which doubled the size of the nation. He was our first wartime president. He led the nation into war in the War of 1812. My boyhood, I was taught that the War Hawks in Congress led us into the War of 1812, Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun. But when I studied it, I didn't think that was true at all. I think it was James Madison who did. And when he retires in 1817, the country is prosperous. The war has been ended successfully. Uh, we, our migration into the West is booming. Our immigration from Europe is booming. It's really a happy country. He is lauded from coast to coast or top to bottom. And it began to occur to me that he may be our only president, who two-term president, who had a better second term than his first term. If you think back to the presidents in our lifetime who had two terms, the second term is often a little tricky. Uh, so uh, Madison pulled that off as well. But then the second fact about Madison, after this long list of achievements, is that he's often not noticed. I found myself telling my editor that he's sort of like the zealot of the American founding era. He's always there, but nobody's paying attention to him. Um, and I wondered, of course, why that was. Now, there is a flip answer. He was short. He was skinny. He had a soft voice. And if George Washington was in the room, and he was immense and had immense stature and gravitas, or if Thomas Jefferson was the room, who was tall and gracious and charming, and everybody, nobody could resist Jefferson at a personal level. Or even if you just had noisy people like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, you didn't notice James Madison. He just sort of disappeared from view. And I think that forms the historical memory and influences it many decades after these people are gone. So I think there is something to that. But there's a second reason, I think, that's much more interesting to me, which is that he was different from a lot of great leaders, really most great leaders. Most great leaders have strong streaks of narcissism. They want to march in the parade. They want to be at the head of the parade, preferably on a white horse. They want acclaim. They want to be noticed and applauded. Madison had none of those qualities. He cared about results, not applause. He wanted to make the American experiment in self-government a success, make the promise of liberty in the, the revolution real. That was the work of his life. A long-term colleague offered a memory of him, which I found resonated, and let me just share it with you, that under all circumstances, he was ever mindful of what was due from him to others and cautious not to wound the feelings of anyone. Doesn't sound like a lot of the leaders we're familiar with. 
ever mindful of what was due from him to others. I think they're much more often mindful of what's due to them from us. Really. <laughs> um, and I think when you study, when you look at Madison's remarkable contributions, though, it also emerges that he rarely operated alone. His great achievements were most often the result of partnerships. And I found it helpful to think of it. It was almost as though he had taken one of these modern personality tests, you know, where they decide whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or you're an ISBJ or an XRZW or whatever it is. And he took stock. And he was, in fact, short and skinny. And he had a small voice. He was losing his hair, and he had zero personal magnetism. All true. But if he was being honest, he would have noticed some significant pluses. He was smarter than just about everybody he met. He had a rare capacity for hard work. He had extraordinary political judgment and foresight. And he also had a talent, a gift, for making connections with people. Not in a big room, not in a crowd, but people one-on-one at a retail level. So why not make common cause with people who had the gifts that he did not? Now, we don't know that he made such an assessment, but the idea I found provided a clarifying lens through which to look at his extraordinary career as a man who understood the power of partnership. I've already managed to skip one of the images I was going to show you. This is an artist's image of the Constitutional Convention, the signing of the Constitution, and it just it helps illustrate for me Madison's difficulty in being picked out. He's standing up on a riser, and you still can barely see him. He's the guy with the quill pen standing next to Washington, who is, of course, immense. Um, and that was his fate, his, his basic quality. But I think Madison really was a man who understood the power of partnership. And I think that's an understanding that is important to every political era, but maybe particularly important to our current era. Now, I looked at five central partnerships because I thought those were the ones that were most important. Some of them waxed and waned through his life. They were not constantly closest of friends. That's not how people live. But let me start with one that was very early in his career with Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was very different from Madison. He, was, he came from nothing. Uh, he was born in Nevis in the uh, Caribbean, essentially a, 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 an orphan. Uh, he came to this country with no advantages other than extraordinary personal brilliance. He was a, wonderful at everything he tried, as a soldier, as a statesman, as a lawyer, as a financier. It, was, it seemed, I'm sure, that there was nothing the man couldn't do. He had a big personality. When he came into a room, he would take it over. Uh, If he'd had enough to drink, he'd jump up on the table and lead everybody in song. Madison was very, very different. He was a fortunate son. His father was the largest landowner in Orange County, Virginia. He would be inheritor of the estate. He was the eldest son. 
He never had his own home until he got married at age 43. He would just rent rooms and boarding houses when he traveled and then would stay in his parents' house when he was home. Indeed, he lived with his mom until he was 78. She was 97. Uh, Dolly Madison had many positive qualities, but her indulgence of her mother-in-law was also one of them. But when these two very different men, this shy, reserved, brilliant, aristocratic fellow, and this brash, brilliant fellow from the Caribbean met each other, they respected each other immediately. And I think there were two reasons for that. One was they recognized that they were both, between them, the smartest people in the room. That was clearly true. But also, they each had a deep commitment to make that American experiment work. They each made that part of the the central work of their life. Now, they were very young men, relatively young men, certainly from my perspective. They were in their early 30s when they met. Hamilton already was denouncing the American government as a failure under the Articles of Confederation. Madison, after a few years, he was a little slower to persuade, came around, and together they led the campaign to have the Constitutional Convention called. At the convention, they had different experiences. Madison was really central to the convention. Hamilton was not. He actually made the mistake of saying what he thought. And what he thought was that we should have a president who served for life. The people there thought that sounded a lot like a king. He thought the senators should serve for life. People thought that sounded a lot like dukes and earls. So he ended up being away from Philadelphia as much as he was there. And the final constitution, when it was presented to be signed, Hamilton was back and he said, no man's ideas differ more from this constitution than mine, but I will sign this and I will fight for it because it's the best we can get. And Madison didn't dislike the Constitution quite as much, but he didn't much care for it. He thought Congress should have a power to veto state laws. He thought state legislatures were the instruments of the devil. They were doing stupid things every day, and they needed to be stopped. He thought the Senate was a terrible structure, that it should be proportional representation, one vote per state. Please forgive me. (laughs) Uh, One vote per state was not appropriate. Um, And both of them put those feelings aside. The Federalist essays were Madison, uh, excuse me, Hamilton's idea initially to lead the fight for the ratification. And he tried to recruit three New Yorkers to the effort. All of them failed. Two of them didn't produce anything that was good enough. And John Jay got sick. And he ended up with Madison, his fourth choice, which turned out to be a brilliant choice. Between them, they wrote 85 essays over a six-month period. It's 190,000 words long, explaining the Constitution in a way that is vibrant today, that courts, lawyers, legislators still turn to, and remains the finest political writing by any Americans. When they were done with that, they each went to their own ratifying conventions, Hamilton in New York and Madison in Virginia. And on the floor 
of those conventions led the ratification fight. Those were tough fights. Madison squared off against Patrick Henry, a great orator. Hamilton had unbelievably uh, long odds against him. Yet they both were able to secure ratification. Now, my second partnership that I talked about was with the indispensable man, George Washington. Washington was 19 years older than Madison. They would never be peers. Washington was the man who had led us through the uh, Revolutionary War, had brought us to independence. And then he did the most amazing thing, which was he gave up power. At the end of the war, he could have made himself dictator. He could have just hung around until somebody else made made him a dictator. But instead, he resigned, and he went home to his farm, to farm. And when King George III of England was told this story, he didn't quite believe it. But he said, if that's true, then he's the greatest man in the world. And it turned out there was no better way to earn the trust of his fellow citizens than to walk away from power. Somebody like that is somebody you can trust to give power, was the view of most Americans. Madison figured out pretty quickly that if he wanted to make anything happen in the young United States, there was no better way to do it than to be standing next to George Washington. When I was uh, first practicing law, I was in a small firm where there was one figure who was stronger than everybody else. He had all the clients. And we used to all say, you and me, Jack, we'll make it happen. And Madison sort of did that with George Washington. He made himself the indispensable man to the indispensable man. So if Washington wanted legislation from the Virginia Assembly, Madison made it happen. If he wanted legislation from Congress, Madison made it happen. And Washington respected talent. He picked out Hamilton as well. He was always looking for bright young men who could help him. And he and Madison formed an extraordinary political partnership. For five years, Madison was his closest political confidant. He used to come to Mount Vernon and stay there for days. And Washington would write only in his diary, simply conversed with Mr. Madison. And there's a wonderful point when Washington becomes president. And he comes to New York to take office. The federal government consists of a few hundred people. We've got a couple of hundred soldiers out in some outposts supposedly watching the Indians, but really mostly drunk. Um, We've got a few clerks, and we've got some congressmen. That was the federal government. So Washington knows he has to give an inaugural address. He needs to strike an important tone for the, the, the new government. So he turns to Madison, and he asks Madison to write his inaugural address. Madison writes him a very short, dignified, strong address. The people in Congress get this inaugural address. They're not quite sure what to do, but they decide they really ought to reply to it. That would show respect for President Washington. So they turn to Madison and ask Madison to write the reply. (laughs) Washington then gets their reply... He doesn't quite know what to do, but he doesn't want to be rude. So he wants to write something to acknowledge their reply. So he asks Madison to write a response to the reply. So in the early days of the government, really for that first year, you really have James Madison talking to himself. 
their greatest political creations were first the government itself, but also the Bill of Rights, because the one thing Washington asked for in his inaugural address written by Madison was a Bill of Rights. It had been left out of the Constitution. It was very controversial. It was a key basis for opposing ratification by many people. And Madison realized that it was necessary. Washington joined in, and they made that happen. Now, the third partnership is the one perhaps we do think of most with Madison, which is with Thomas Jefferson. They were truly soulmates. They were from the same world. They grew up 30 miles apart. Uh, Jefferson was eight years older, but they were both the eldest son of the largest landowner in their respective counties, had thousands of acres of land they would inherit. Uh, Montpelier, the Madison estate, had 100 slaves. Monticello, the Jefferson estate, had 200 slaves. Uh, They were both brilliant, both bookworms. They were interested in everything. They knew something about most things, and their correspondence to each other is really a joy to read. They wrote about philosophy and physics and Uh, farm implements and rotating crops and animals and plants and occasionally about uh, politics. And it's clear that they just enjoyed each other's company, each other's mind so much. They agreed on most political questions, but they had very different styles. Jefferson was a visionary type, He had big ideas. He was a wonderful uh, stylist as a writer. Of course, we have the Declaration of Independence from him, but even his regular correspondence is a treat. Uh, uh, When uh, Congress was not adjourning, he he wrote somebody that adjournment walks before us like a shadow. I mean, this this is good stuff. Um, Madison was much more analytical. He was, and, and it inhibited his writing in an amazing way. He could never simply say something because he was always thinking about what had to be qualified about it and what might not be true. And so, to, and so he'd have his sentences ended up as forests of subordinate clauses. And some people have described his writing as like an insurance contract. But Jefferson greatly valued Madison because often he would think through the weaknesses in Jefferson's great visionary ideas, which would get him all motivated. And he developed a pattern when he would get a great idea. He'd run it by Madison first. Sometimes Madison said, great. Other times Madison said, you know, there are these eight or ten things you might want to think about. Um, They both became most disenchanted with Hamilton's financial system under the new government. Hamilton became Secretary of the Treasury, set up the Bank of the United States, consolidated the debt, brought in the debts from all the states for the federal government to assume. And very quickly, he made the federal government stronger than Madison thought it could be under the Constitution. And both Jefferson and Madison were troubled by that, and they wanted to oppose it. And they found the only way practically to oppose it was to change public opinion. It's very tough taking on President Washington. So 
the way you do that in a democracy is with a political party. They began by recruiting like-minded people within the Congress, then politically active individuals in individual states, finally newspaper editors, because they needed to change public opinion until finally in 1800 they are able to take the government. And they took it in such a resounding way that for the next 24 years, the President of the United States was Jefferson for eight years, Madison for eight years, and then James Monroe for eight years, who also lived within 30 miles of the other two men. So for 24 years, we had presidents who were neighbors. And really, for the first six decades of the 19th century, their political party dominated American uh, life. The fourth partnership was sort of a new one for me, a fellow James Monroe. I had never studied too much. It surprised me at first a number of people who were his contemporaries who felt it necessary to comment on how he wasn't too smart. Uh, he had been a very uh, enthusiastic soldier in the Revolution as a very young man. He went to war at age 18. He was a tall, charismatic, strapping guy, not an intellectual. His letters with Madison, and they were friends for 30 years, uh, don't have the sort of philosophy and speculative qualities that the correspondence with Jefferson does. But he's shrewd politically. He's a smart operator. He's what my father would have called smart enough for all practical purposes. And he and Madison were pals in a way that I think might have been more relaxed than the relationship with Jefferson, where they were constantly talking about huge subjects. They were sometimes rivals, which made their partnership different from all the others. In 1789, the first election for Congress, Madison is going to run for Congress in his home district, and Monroe is persuaded to oppose him. So they ran against each other for Congress. It's the only time in our history that two future presidents have opposed each other in an electoral contest for a lower office. They had a real campaign. This was a time when people stood for office. They didn't run for office. They just sort of would put their name out there. And Madison hated to campaign, but he knew he had to campaign against Monroe. Monroe was a war hero, an impressive personally. So they actually went from out to different churches where there were meetings, and they would debate each other out in the cold. It was the coldest January in years in central Virginia. Madison actually got frostbite after one of the debates, and he used to describe it as the wound he had received in defense of his country. Um, And he did win handily by about a three-to-two margin. And they had sworn before they started the campaign that it wouldn't affect their friendship, and it didn't seem to. They picked right up afterwards. But then 20 years later, they had a very different kind of falling out. Madison was Secretary of State, Monroe was ambassador to Britain. This is an era dominated by the war between Britain and France, beginning with the French Revolution and then through the Napoleonic era. For 20 years, Britain and France fought a duel to the death. It was the defining event of the North Atlantic. And we were the collateral damage, the the Americans were. Our merchants 
could make a lot of money trading with either side. It was a great opportunity. But the British and French didn't find that very charming. And so they developed patterns of seizing our ships and taking our our sailors off the ships, which is something the Royal Navy did repeatedly. And we didn't really have much of an army or a navy, so we just absorbed these insults for years and years and years. Madison was asked, excuse me, Monroe was asked to negotiate a treaty with Britain to resolve some of these disputes. He produced a treaty that I think charitably could have been described as terrible. Um, The British really were not going to give us any concessions. They really were in this duel to the death. But he thought it was so important to have peace, to allow the nation to grow and get stronger. He sent it back to be signed, he hoped. Madison and Jefferson hated it as soon as they saw it. They stuck it in a bottom drawer and never told anybody about it ever again. Monroe was mortified. He had spent three years negotiating that treaty. He felt personally insulted. And he cut off connections with Madison. They didn't speak for two years after he came back from his diplomatic posting. They didn't exchange any letters. In fact, when Madison ran for president in 1808, Monroe was one of his opponents again. It's not a serious opponent, but he allowed his name to be put into nomination against Madison. Two years into his administration, though, Madison decided that America could no longer absorb these insults from the British and the French that we needed to fight. And he had a problem. His Secretary of State, who is sad to say a Baltimorean, (laughs) a fellow named Robert Smith, whose brother was a far more talented fellow, Samuel Smith. Robert Smith was not competent, but also was actively disloyal. He would disclose confidential discussions from the cabinet to outsiders and in the press, and Madison couldn't really endure having him as his Secretary of State any longer. So he did fire Smith, and he wanted Monroe, despite their falling out. And they were able to patch it up. Monroe had been out in the wilderness for two years, and he had the itch to get ahead, and he wanted to be president someday, so he accepted the offer in the cabinet to be Secretary of State. He also served during the administration as Secretary of War for part of the time. And for part of the, on two separate periods, he served as both Secretary of State and Secretary of War simultaneously. I'm pretty sure that's the only time in American history anybody's done that. And he was a terribly valuable member of the cabinet. He was experienced in European diplomacy, He was a friend of Madison's. He could advise him in a way others couldn't. And he had a martial quality that Madison would never have and that communicated a toughness that was needed in a wartime atmosphere that Madison could not do. Now, the final partnership is the most interesting one to me, and that's his wife, Dolly. Madison might well not have been president and certainly not so successful a president without her. Like James, she grew up on a southern plantation uh, with a difference. Uh, 
her family, as you can see from this image, which is the earliest image we have of her, was Quaker. She's wearing a Quaker bonnet in that image. Uh, I'd also like to draw attention in, I have a few images of her I'll show you, and she's always got this little smile. It looks like she's about to tell you a joke, uh, and I think it gives you a little feel for the way she was, that there, we always get the smile. Um, the Quaker hierarchy in Virginia decided that their members could no longer own slaves, so they directed them to free their slaves, and Mr. Payne did, and moved his family to Philadelphia. She was a teenager at the time. His business promptly crashed, and they had terrible financial trouble, but Dolly flourished. She was tall for a woman of the era, had an hourglass figure, thick black hair, creamy complexion, blue eyes. Men liked her. Men liked her a lot. Uh, she had a first husband, but uh, that first husband, and she, they had two sons. The first husband and one of the sons died in the yellow fever epidemic of 1793, leaving her as a single mother, but a highly eligible one. She was 24 years old, and she did not want for suitors. And one of the most ardent was Madison, who was 17 years older than she. I always like this image of Madison. It's about the only one we have where he doesn't look like somebody just shot his dog. Um, he has a certain uh, zip in it. Um, and I do like to point out that although Madison was short and he was losing his hair and he was skinny and he had a small voice, he did have the hottest wife of all the founders. <laughs> now, the way they met is a story we only know part of. There was some event, or he passed her on the streets, something brought her before Madison, and he said something of the, along the lines of, who is that woman? And he determined that she was, in fact, Dolly Payne Todd, and that his college friend from Princeton, Aaron Burr, was renting a room from Dolly's mother. So he arranged to have Aaron Burr introduce him to Dolly. And we can see Dolly's playful nature and her sophistication from the remarks she included in a letter she wrote to a friend on the day she was to meet Madison. She wrote then that she was going to meet the great little Madison. And it does capture him because he was little, but he was also great. He was a national political leader. He was rich. He was kind. He was smart. In an era, the Jane Austen era, when who you married defined a woman's life, you could do a lot worse than James Madison, and Dolly clearly understood that. Studying their relationship was a great privilege. They wrote wonderfully warm letters to each other long after the glow of the first infatuation faded. Um, quite surprisingly, there are accounts of James Madison's flirtatiousness. There's one episode or, or pattern in particular that comes up relating to Do Dolly's sister, Lucy. Lucy was widowed while James was president, so she and her three children moved into the White House with the Madisons and lived there for three years. 
And uh, by all accounts, he enjoyed Lucy tremendously and thought she was a lot of fun. She was Dolly's sister, after all. But what he liked to do was to kiss Dolly in front of Lucy and turn to her and say, does that make your mouth water? Now, it's a little creepy. Um, I'll admit it. But it's not how you've ever thought about James Madison. And I think there is some value in that. The Madisons never had children. There was the stepson from Dolly's first marriage. And they are sometimes imagined as this sort of semi-sad, childless couple. But the truth was completely different. Their house was ordinarily overrun with children. They had in excess of 50 nieces and nephews uh, who would come stay with them for weekends, weeks, months at a time. Children of friends would come and stay for similar periods. Uh, They often had 20, 25 people for dinner. Half of them would be children. Uh, Their friends would often send their eligible girl children to be with the Madisons where they could meet the appropriate army officer or naval officer, and Dolly would always take care to make sure that that happened. And it is missed that the Madisons were a lot of fun. In small groups, James was quick with a quip. He was funny. He would keep the dinner table laughing through the meal. Dolly was vivacious and engaging in big settings and small settings. A niece of hers described her as a faux de dullness. I enjoy this one account in their retirement. Uh, this is, they retired back to Montpelier. This is the image. I hope some of you have had a chance to go there or will go there. It's a wonderfully restored location now. But you can see the portico on the front. And in retirement, they would run races against each other on the portico. Now, either those were very short races or they turned a lot. It's hard to know. But again, this is not how you've been thinking about the Madisons. And I have one other piece of evidence which really surprised me most, which is evidently during their retirement years, Dolly, who had always been larger than James, but continued to be larger and larger than James, um, would load him up on her back and carry him through the house and sort of be shrieking with joy. Um, Roughhousing with James Madison, again, not what we're used to. Their fun, though, particularly Dolly's, I want to stress, had a purpose. Through James's eight years as Secretary of State and eight years as President, she provided tremendous, or served as a tremendous asset. This is an image of her during that era. She set a bright social tone for the world of the New Republic. She was gay and gracious. She always sought out the most awkward person in the room, put them at ease, She played cards. By all accounts, she played poorly, which is very charming. Um, She took snuff. She was completely unpretentious. Uh, At one social event, she was walking around carrying a volume of Cervantes' Don Quixote, and somebody said, why are you carrying Don Quixote at a social event? And she said, well, if the conversation flags, it gives me something to talk about. She thought about these things. Um, she understood that she needed to provide glamour and charisma to a government that James could never provide. When he became president, she began to wear turbans, large white turbans, satin or or velvet. And uh, she would put 
feathers in the top of the turbans or sometimes a piece of fruit. So you could always see her from any part of the room. You just look for the fruit. James would be off in a corner. He would always greet everybody very diligently and, frankly, a bit humorlessly and then go off and talk business with a couple of other gentlemen in the corner of the room, and Dolly would hold forth in the middle. She loved the spotlight. She was great in the spotlight. Um, There's a wonderful moment when James has just been sworn in as president for the first time. This is in March of 1809, and they have the first inaugural ball for the Madisons. And a friend greets him there and says, isn't this wonderful? This, This is the pinnacle of your career. And Madison says, I'd really rather be home in bed, uh, which was true. Uh, But Dolly certainly wouldn't have. They freely mixed foreigners and Americans, Republicans and Federalists, and produced a sort of social swirl that allowed the sinews of policy and politics to strengthen and grow in an informal setting, which can be terribly important. Office seekers came to Dolly to help them get a job. She was referred to as the lady presidentess. We didn't have the term the first lady. And we don't know of the conversations between James and Dolly about those matters, but we do know that some of those people did get jobs. And she was really a political partner, a loyal and sure-footed one who not only warmed his private life, but also helped him forge a new Republican style for the nation. The Federalist candidate for president in 1808 who lost to Madison said a bit churlishly that he had actually lost to Mr. and Mrs. Madison. I might have had a better chance had I faced Mr. Madison alone. Now, Dolly's shining moment came on James Madison's worst day in office which is the day the British marched into Washington and burned our public buildings. The day had been a catastrophe in many ways. The Battle of Bladensburg had pointed up really poor military planning. It wasn't even much of a battle. Madison had gone out to try to rally the troops, and he couldn't even control his horse. And then he had to rush back to Washington, and then rush over to Virginia to avoid being captured. Other Americans really were humiliated by this experience, and he was denounced. I think some, the principal reason he doesn't usually make the list of the top five presidents is because of this single day. But Dolly had a good moment on that day. She had packed up state papers and the silver. And at the last minute, she remembered the Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington. We were not a monarchy. We didn't have crown jewels or a scepter, but we did have a Republican tradition that revered, even then, revered George Washington. And this was the symbol of Washington. And she had it cut down and spirited out of Washington and preserved. And Americans rejoiced in that, in her presence of mind and her spirit on that occasion. Now, the Madisons enjoyed a mostly happy retirement in Montpelier until poor health began to catch up with James. 
But something else caught up with him in retirement, and I want to talk about just for a second. And that's slavery, which was a central part of James Madison's life his whole life. I was shocked when I started discovering, I started researching to discover that Madison's grandfather had been poisoned by a slave and, and died as a result. This is often glossed over, and I don't know why. Uh, they lived at Montpelier with 90 or 100 slaves, maybe six or eight white Madisons maximum at any time. And every one of them knew that story. Madison didn't talk about it ever. We have no record of him ever talking about it. But I think it captures the violence, the aggression, the oppression that is at the core of the slave system. And Madison was completely aware of the contradictions between his professed belief in human liberty and the way he lived. As a young man, he struggled with that contradiction. He actually bought land at upstate New York and wrote to a friend that he hoped to move there and never live on the labor of slaves. He never did it. Life at Montpelier was pretty comfortable. Uh, Virginia was a great platform for his political career. He was swept away by the great events of the time. He had wonderful opportunities to build this great new nation. He dedicated his life to human freedom, but the contradiction was excruciating for him. At the Constitutional Convention, he warned his fellow delegates over and over and over again that they were fighting over stupid things. They were fighting between small states and large states. And what they should be worried about was slavery. Slavery was what was going to destroy the country if anything did. This was in 1787. When he went on to have this remarkable career, it seemed to me that he managed to compartmentalize this concern. Somehow not have it in his mind. He was worrying about all these other problems. But when he retires and he goes back to Montpelier, And again, it's just him and a few other white people and 90 or 100 slaves. He can't get away from it. And the world is changing. The Missouri Compromise is in 1820. Abolitionism begins to grow. They have visitors from the North and from Europe who who lecture him. He's a former president. They lecture him on slavery. The Nat Turner Rebellion happens in 1831. 60 white people are slaughtered, then 100 slaves are slaughtered in vengeance. Dolly actually writes to a friend in the middle of the terror over the rebellion, I know we cannot defend ourselves, so I am quiet. And in retirement, Madison became even more obsessed with slavery than he had ever been. He wrote memoranda to himself. This was a lifelong trait. But he wrote memoranda to himself about how to fix slavery. After all, he was part of fixing the problem with the government when in the 1780s when it was too weak and we needed a new constitution. He was far, part of fixing the problem with our international stature, with the War of 1812, to earn us respect in the world. And this was a third great challenge. He needed to find a way to fix this. 
And he came up with these plans to sell off a public land in the West, and you would take the money and you would buy the slaves out of bondage, and then you'd ship them to Africa or you'd ship them to South America or over, send them out West. He couldn't imagine an integrated society. He just thought they had to be sent somewhere else. It was all a pipe dream. We had two million slaves, most of whom didn't want to go anywhere else. This was their home. This was the only place they knew, and we didn't have enough ships. We didn't, nothing about it was practical. But he was haunted by it. He was finally reduced to this really sorry gesture. He became so fed up with people lecturing him about slavery that he built sort of a Potemkin village. This is a restoration they're doing in Montpelier. That's the, obviously the mansion there on the background. But most slave quarters were sort of lousy places that were kept behind the trees or around the, you know, on the other side of the hill so nobody had to see them. None of the white people had to see them. And he decided to build fine houses for his slaves, his house slaves anyway. And they would have glass windows and hung doors, plank floors, and they were two stories. And that's what they're rebuilding here. And it is almost more poignant and more disappointing that confronted with the crime of slavery, and he thought it was a crime, the best he could come up with was to build some nicer housing. He never did free a single one of his slaves. And there's no public action he took that ever freed a slave. And he went to his grave, tortured by it, but unable to figure it out. In his final years, James became increasingly decrepit. His last two years were spent essentially in two rooms. This is a wonderful image we have of him just two years before his death. He, he lived to be 85, even though his health had always been pretty dodgy. He turned out to have been built for the long haul. Uh, his mind remained sharp right up to the end. He loved to have visitors, and to, he would talk with them for hours. Uh, he had to dictate his letters. His arthritis was so bad, as Dolly wrote to a friend, his hands and fingers are still so swelled and sore as to be nearly useless, but I lend him mine. After he died in 1836, she tried to hang on to Montpelier, but the times were bad. Uh, Virginia agriculture was not good. Uh, she ended up having to sell Montpelier. She was really not a woman of business. She sold off most of the remaining slaves, ended her life in a sort of genteel poverty living in Washington. But happily for us, she lived long enough for us to get a photograph of her. She's really the only person of that generation we have a photograph of. I think you can see the hint of a smile that is in all of her images, as well as the real strength of character. This was taken just a year before she died. Um, I've nattered on about Madison's partnerships, but I want to end with a note about Madison himself. We always think of him, I think, as this sort of creature of intellect. One of his contemporaries said, I've never seen so much mind in so little matter. Um, but his greatest qualities, I think, were 
personal were his genuineness, his integrity, his modesty, his open-heartedness. That's why he was able to form these partnerships with very different people. And I find one episode highlights those qualities in a way I'd like to close with. It's in February of 1815. The War of 1812 has gone on for three years. The arithmetic's pretty easy on that. Uh, There's a rumor that peace has been made in Europe. It took a long time for news to travel across the Atlantic. So a Pennsylvania senator hears this rumor, and he rushes to the Octagon House to see Madison. The Octagon House still stands on 17th Street. Of course, that's where Madison was living because the British had burned down the White House. And allow me to read a couple of sentences from my book about that scene. The senator found the house dark, the president sitting solitary in his parlor in perfect tranquility with not a servant in waiting. The senator asked if the rumor was true. Madison bade him sit down. I will tell you all I know, he said. Then confirmed that he thought there was peace, but he had no official confirmation. The senator recalled with some wonder what he called the president's self-command on the occasion and greatness of mind. The War of 1812 truly had been Mr. Madison's war, as his opponents called it. It was about principles, not gain. It was fought with a quiet tenacity, sometimes ineptly, <coughs> excuse me, and with endless tolerance of those who opposed it. A friend of Madison's wrote years later that the war had been conducted in perfect keeping with the character of the president. <coughs> and when peace came, Madison welcomed it in a darkened house, sitting alone with his thoughts. Thank you. Be happy to take a couple questions if anybody has them. Yeah, since we're podcasting, if you wouldn't mind coming to the microphone, or I can bring the microphone. Be brave. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned the... uh, Bill of Rights. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how they came to be? My understanding is there were 12. It ended up being 10. Uh, and, and also, maybe you might address a little bit, just the, the, particularly the First Amendment, which is what almost 20 years later was what King and his followers pretty much used the five freedoms to uh, kind of secure many of the uh, voting rights and civil rights laws. That's your thoughts on that. The Bill of Rights, as originally written by Madison, were about 20 provisions. Uh, and the legislative process worked its way. Uh, some were consolidated, some were dropped. He was very disappointed that one was dropped that would have allowed the courts to control acts by state legislatures. He still thought state legislatures were terrible, but that was dropped. There were 12, as you say, that got out of Congress and were sent to be ratified. Ten were, uh, two were not, although one has since been ratified, which is the 27th Amendment, rather a dopey amendment, which 
requires that if Congress raises its own salary, it doesn't take effect until the next Congress. I mean, big deal. But it was, it's now the 27th Amendment. Um, Madison had very modest expectations for the Bill of Rights. He thought in a time of crisis, a government would ignore written rights. He described it as mere parchment barriers. And when he introduced it, he said, I hope you will find these not inappropriate and not altogether useless. (laughs) He was setting the bar pretty low. What he did say, though, which I think was true, was that by adopting them, you could make those rights, those principles, part of our political culture, which over generations would be absorbed and would become what we cherished and what we demanded of our government. So it was more than 100 years before the Supreme Court ever enforced any of the rights in the Bill of Rights. But by the end of the second 100 years, they had enforced most of them. So he was playing a long game, and I think it worked out. Uh, Changing political culture is hard to do. Uh, And... uh, uh, he did achieve it, but it took many generations. Yes, sir. I wanted to follow up on your points about uh, Madison and slavery. Dolly Madison came from a Quaker family. Did she remain a Quaker, and did she have any influence or thoughts on the subject? And second of all, it's always puzzled me why Madison and Jefferson foresaw the saw the evil of slavery, foresaw the the danger it was to the republic and yet could not bear to give up their own slaves? Was it just they couldn't give up their personal comfort and their wealth? Well, let me start with Dolly, which is a great question because it is vexing. Um, She was delirious to get away from the Quakers. She thought they were not much fun. (laughs) And Dolly liked to have fun. Uh, So she stopped being a Quaker. But the experience of having her father free her slaves seems not to have been a positive one for her. It did, frankly, result in the terrible loss for her family. And she then marries a very large slaveholder. I mean, that wasn't a secret. He was living in Philadelphia with slaves looking after him. He always traveled with a couple. Um, she never said anything in a letter that we have, or in, even in a conversation that was recorded, about slavery, except for an occasional peevish remark about a slave who wasn't doing her job well enough. So it's very little evidence that we have about Dolly's view of slavery, but at the very least, she wasn't going to get in James's hair about it, and I'm inclined to think it didn't bother her much, but I acknowledge the evidence is, is slender. Now, 
the question about Madison and Jefferson and all the others of our founding fathers who lived on slave labor, there was a fantasy that they held at the time of the founding, 1780s, that slavery would just end. And that is what happened in the North. I mean, there were slaves throughout the North, a much smaller proportion, but there were. And gradual emancipation laws were adopted. Slavery was not economically significant in the northern states, and it did just sort of end. In the South, though, it was key to the economic system. And so that fantasy, by the by 1820 at least, they know it's not true. It's not going away. And I don't have a better answer for you than that it was really comfortable. Uh, I know Madison in his late years was pressed by many people to do something, at least free a couple of slaves. He had a former secretary who was one of Dolly's cousins, actually, Edward Coles, who had freed his own slaves bought them land in Illinois Territory, had taken them out there and set them up on farms. And he came back and said to Madison, see, I did it, you can do it. It will mean so much to the country if you do it, if you do something. Madison never did anything. I think probably one of his motivations was he was afraid of leaving Dolly without enough assets. She was a good deal younger than he and was going to outlive him by a good bit. There are reports from several contemporaries that he and she had an oral agreement that she would free the slaves upon her death. That was what Washington had set up with his slaves. That had proved in the Washington case not to be a good arrangement because Martha Washington discovered that she was living on a plantation with several hundred people who wanted her to die. And that's was not comfortable, so she freed them after a couple of years. Um, And to the extent he was relying on Dolly to execute it, I just think that was unfair. He'd lived with this woman for 42 years. He knew that this was not the sort of thing she could do. She had wonderful talents, but managing a business transaction like that was not one of them. Uh, So It is simply, for those of us who want to admire Madison, uh, it is simply a matter of sadness. So, one last question. Just to follow up with that, is it true that Adams was the only founding father that did not save him? Was that because he was in the North, or is that not true? Uh, The question is, is it true that John Adams was the only founding father who did not own slaves? There were a bunch, uh, or who opposed slavery. There were several who were members of anti-slavery societies. Hamilton was. Uh, Aaron Burr actually was. Um, and Franklin was the head of an anti-slavery society and actually was making, raising hell about slavery the year before he died. Um, there were two delegates to the Constitutional Convention, John Dickinson and William Livingston, who had freed their own slaves. So it wasn't impossible 
I mean, Dickinson had had 37 slaves, and he had to pay a tax to Delaware for every slave, slave he freed because it was assumed that the slave would become a, a burden on the state. But he did it. And uh, it's just a great disappointment. Okay, one last question. This may be a very simple question, but probably the, to answer that question would have been horrendous knowing, of, knowing the history of that particular period that was so sad and almost nobody probably could think of what could happen to the slaves after freedom. What purpose, what hope, what system can you give them or establish them other than just simply letting them go because one thing is to have a freedom which is great but once you have that freedom you have to have something to start with out of your own strength, out of your own character, out of your own base integrity you cannot just simply go out to the world and then get lost they would have to be in a certain structured kind of system that they can make really something out of themselves and really rely on that and sort of not depend on, again, on other systems. What is your question? Well, okay, I can comment on that. The, the, the question is essentially, so you free the slaves, what are they going to do? They have no resources. Exactly. And we did that after the Civil War. Um, and it didn't end terribly well. But the fact is... Um, that's actually was Madison's big argument against freeing slaves was that when you saw freed blacks, they tended to live abased lives was his view. They didn't work. They didn't have skills. Uh, and they were despised by the white people. They were discriminated against everywhere they turned. And he just didn't. That was why he couldn't see an integrated society and that they were not ready for their for independence and that slavery was better for them um it was also better for him and i have to say it, it doesn't end up persuading me so thank you very much <laughs>